Um, we're going to pick back up where we left off a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, correcting carnality in Christ's church. Um, I had every intention of, you know, just kind of moving through the text and got pretty sick last week and couldn't make it in. And I did watch the service online and I was, first time I've had the, the first time I've had the chance to do that. And I was really blessed. It's really amazing that technology that God has blessed us with. And more than the technology was the fact that Cameron gave that that text in 2 Samuel 9, just such a, a treatment that made me feel like I need to find a new career. Uh, that was just an amazing exposition of the text and, and tying it to Christ, which is the point. Well done. And uh, maybe I should uh, be sick more often. I, that's a stupid thing to wish for. When you hit 50, it can happen. You know, it starts happening more. But super blessed to be able to watch online and, and be with you in spirit. <clears throat> we we kind of slide back to Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5. And in the context, we know the Corinthians were tolerating all, all sorts of different sin in their church. But one thing they were tolerating was this sinful sexual immorality or sexual behavior that even in that highly perverted sexualized culture, even in that culture, would have been taboo. And uh, <clears throat> that's kind of tough for me to wrap my mind around. You know, I understand as a pastor, the church is, is really a hospital for, you know, people. And we're all, you know, for the most part, sinners saved by grace. Not everyone in the church, but a lot of people are. And we still have flesh and we still have struggles in these sorts of things. And, and I think that, um, you know, we, we get that and we understand that. But sometimes you hear about something in a church that just is at another level and kind of blows your mind. And, and you say to yourself, well, man, how is that even possible? Or how would the justification or allowing that to go be even possible? Because that sounds like Davis High 1987. That sounds like Las Vegas. That sounds like, you know, the, the worst kind of immoral, you know, depraved kind of behavior. And, and we know, again, we're sinners saved by grace, and, and we got to deal with things. But some things are just, they just kind of make your mind get blown up. And, and that's what was happening here in this particular church. The sexual sin that was not being dealt with was the fact that some young man was, was sleeping with his father's wife. And we don't know if that was a stepmom or his, his natural mom. <clears throat> we don't know. We're not given the detail but what we're told is that's what was happening and that it wouldn't have even been accepted in Corinth. And this is happening in the church. And I think that Paul, of, of all the, the Christians that we could think of through all the, the centuries and through all of time since the birth of the church, the Apostle Paul, in my mind, the most amazing believer of all time, for a man like this who's seen it all and... Um, who even came out of a religious system where, you know, killing Christians wasn't a bad thing, who's seen a lot, has heard a lot, for a guy like this to literally be shocked at a church's behavior is pretty astounding. And he is shocked. He is shocked. He has gotten a report that this kind of sexual immorality is present in one of Christ's churches, a physical 
expression of the church, a local body. He's blown away. And I don't think Paul was the kind of guy that you could blow away with much. <clears throat> but he's blown away. And when he received the initial report, <clears throat> he did send a letter warning the Corinthians specifically not to associate with sexually immoral people. We see that in chapter 5, verse 9. <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 9 is not a reference to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. This is an extra-biblical writing. This is a simple letter as he gets the report that he writes and sends off. I really wish we could get our mitts or hands on this letter, uh, but God has withheld it, probably for our own good. But in any case, he has written about this issue already. And what happened is the church failed or refused or just neglected to heed his instruction and take action. Or at least they failed to take proper action and to do exactly as he had, had instructed. They let the sexually immoral couple continue on in their sin and continue to defile themselves and the body. Because that's what unrepentant sin does. It defiles not only the individual believer, but it defiles that body, that church. When Paul received a second report stating that nothing had changed, he then penned 1 Corinthians, or more particularly chapters 5 and 6 in 1 Corinthians, which deal with this particular sexual sin. A couple Sundays ago, we looked at the first two points in chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. We looked at the perversion of the Corinthians, which was obviously the sexual immorality. And we looked at the pride that blinds, meaning that these people were so consumed with theology and, and knowledge and, and being impressed with preachers and preaching style and, and all this stuff and then building these little cliques and, and all this pride was present, which was actually blinding them from their own real reality, and that's that sexual sin was present in harming the church and these sorts of things. So that was the pride that blinds. Those are the two things we looked at a couple weeks ago. And this morning we're going to look at points three through seven. There was only going to be six originally, but as I started studying again a couple of weeks ago, I realized I needed to add one. So we're going to look at points three to seven today. If you're not there already, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 3 to... Uh, 3 to 13 is the text. It's really just the rest of the chapter. It's a short chapter. Now, I'd like to pray before we get to work. <clears throat> Father, thank you for uh, yet another opportunity to come and present your word to your people. We pray that you're glorified during this time. Glorified not just in the proclamation, but in the examination of ourselves as we hear the word. Glorified in the conviction that will be present through the Spirit glorified in the action that will be present through the Spirit in us, the repentance that, that you will lead us to, the turning from not just sexual sin, but any sin. We pray that that happens today and that you're glorified by all of that. I pray that as a preacher this morning, you help me get this, through this sermon with clarity. <clears throat> and I pray that now you would even supernaturally subdue my cough and my sinuses and <clears throat> just the way I feel, Lord. Just speak through me. Your power is made perfect and even visually present through weakness. And it's been a while since I've been this weak. 
So, Lord, we pray that you would manifest your power in and through me. <clears throat> if I have to be weak, that you would be glorified by displaying your power, then make me as weak as I can be. Uh, just borderline flatline me, do whatever it is to exalt yourself. And we commit our time to you and pray in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago and look at that third point. This is what Paul says next, but the point is simple. And if you've noticed, we've got P's because I like letters. I like letters and I like numbers. And I've been told I'm stupid, but I don't care. The presence of Paul and Christ's power. So presence and power. We see this in verses 3 and 4. This is the next thing that he says. Listen to what Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he corrects this sexually immoral church. He says, For though absent in the body, I am present in the Spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now just stop there. <clears throat> we'll get into the rest of the sentencing in a moment. What Paul is doing is he's calling upon the Corinthians to acknowledge with him the seriousness of this offense. Obviously, if they had taken this uh, disgusting display of sexual immorality, this incestuous relationship, if they had taken it seriously, we wouldn't have this chapter, these chapters. We wouldn't have him talking about this. And so what he's trying to do right now is he's trying to get them to, along with him, to acknowledge the seriousness of this issue, which is not something they've been doing. He's, he's trying to get them to recognize the need for discipline. He's trying to get them to recognize the need to take appropriate action. Because even though Paul isn't there with them, he himself, and he's probably in Ephesus covering the pulpit for Timothy who delivered this letter, wherever he is, he himself is not present there, but he's present somewhere, and he has already passed judgment on this young man and this woman. He's already done that, and he's trying to get them to follow his example here. I need you to take seriously what they're doing as if I were there because I'm taking it serious. Follow my lead on this. Act as if I am there with you. And I need you to do something about it right now. This is what he's trying to convey here. The phrase, I am present in the spirit, <clears throat> is not to be taken literally. This isn't some kind of supernatural mystical omnipresence of the Apostle Paul. He's not literally with them, but what he's trying to convey is that he is with them in spirit, meaning in their hearts, in their memories, in their minds. It's as if he were there with them. Just as I right now, and I totally sense this, and I thought this is kind of an interesting thing. We've heard this phrase before, but I felt this way last Sunday. I couldn't be here, but I felt as if I was with you in spirit. And one of the things that helped to, to increase that, that really neat sense of being with you was the, the stream, 
the streaming gave me a greater sense of being with you here. And I would never put being in front of a screen and watching it through a stream at the same level as actually being here. I think it's sad that some Christians do that. But when I'm away on vacation, or if I'm out sick, or if something's happened and I just can't be here, I am with you in spirit. If you think of me in those moments for whatever reason, hopefully positively, I'm with you in spirit. If you carry me in your memory, we do this with loved ones who have passed away and gone to be with the Lord, don't we? There are a few people here who are still attending RHC in a sense. I can see B in the front row. Yeah? I can see K. I can hear K. I can hear her encouraging me. And that's the idea. Is it a a real tangible kind of thing? No. No, they're, they're with the Lord. Believe me, if we could snatch them down from their high and lofty perch in glory and bring them here, they'd say, why did you do this? Just let me be with you in spirit. Not physically, because I was with the Lord. I always wonder if this is how Lazarus felt. Right? He's dead and gone for four days. And somehow he's in heaven in the presence of Christ. Figure that one out why Christ is here. Somehow he's with him. And then all of a sudden he's brought back. I'd have been ticked. First of all, the King James says he stinketh. So you know the stinketh didn't come off of him. I'd have had Axe body spray in the tomb. I mean, can you imagine being with in glory like that and then being brought back? I don't know exactly if that's how it played out or what that was like. I know the Jews thought that Lazarus' spirit was hovering over his body because they had the superstition that that happened for three days after death. I don't think that's legit. I don't see that in the Bible. But, but the idea of somebody being with us in spirit, I, I think that you can testify to what that's kind of like right now if you've lost somebody you love. Or even the fact that, that my loving wife is not here today. She's with us in spirit. Ryan is with us in spirit. That was actually Ryan playing the guitar through Kelly. No, then now you get weird. Now you get weird. <clears throat> we don't want to get weird with it. And I think that's what Paul's trying to say. And, and he's trying to use it in an authoritarian way. Like, you need to behave as if I'm there with you. I'm telling you what I have done. I've passed judgment on this young man. And you need to not pretend, but act as if I am there with you. If I'm there in your heart, in a sense, not like the Holy Spirit or anything, but if I'm there in your memory, if I'm there in your mind, I'm present even in this letter because he's the human author behind the divine inspiration. And so it, it kind of ups the seriousness for the Corinthians to be now under the persuasion and idea that Paul is in a, a way he is there with them. And more than that, more than Paul being there, Christ is there, right? And, and Christ isn't there in the same way that Paul is there. Paul is there in the heart and in the memory. Christ is really there. He's really there manifesting his presence through the Holy Spirit in and through every one of those true believers. 
Now, who bears the most authority? Paul, the apostle, or the Messiah? Christ does. So this is what he's trying to convey. He does not have the divine attribute of omnipresence. He's just trying to convey that he's always with them in some sense. And he's always going to be what he's been saying, a spiritual father to them. Because he is the one who initially led them to the Lord. He sees himself as a spiritual father to them. He sees himself as there there with them. As physical children carry uh, the markings of their physical parents, you know, wherever they go, because they do, you know. Uh, one kid's got the father's eyebrows. If they got mine, I'm sorry, kids, because, man, those things are like gorilla arms on your forehead. Uh, you know, but you bear the markings of, of, you know, your children bear the markings of you. Some of them carry your personality. Rachel and I always talk, not always, but sometimes we're talking about the heirs' kids and who looks like who, you know. And I was like, wow, you know. Cohen sure looks like Cameron. And she's like, no, no, he doesn't look like Cameron. Carson looks like Cameron. I said, no, no, Carson doesn't look like Cameron. He acts like Cameron. (laughs) There's a huge difference. Okay? But, you know, the the children, they, they bear the markings of their parents. And in a very similar way, the spiritual children of Paul bear his markings as his spiritual children. And ultimately what he's saying is, I am always with you. I'm always there because I am a spiritual dad to you. I am a spiritual brother to you. I am the apostle who led you to the Lord. I am the one who who has written these letters to you. Nobody else wrote these letters, by the way, and we don't want to argue with God's providence or sovereignty, but just take note of the fact that Paul is the one that wrote the letters to these churches. He wrote an initial letter we don't have access to, and he wrote these other two. Paul is taking responsibility for this church as a spiritual father. And now he's saying, I have passed judgment on this sexually immoral couple. I have done that. And by the way, that's not a popular thing today. But I have already done that. And I need for you to behave as if I were there. And you need to render the same exact judgment. That's what you need to do. And Paul said something very similar to the Colossians. I, I kind of this is kind of a trend for him with the churches that he planted and ministered to over time. Colossae, he was concerned that false teachers were trying to delude the gospel with you know dumb, plausible arguments. And in Colossians two five, he said, "For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit." I know there's false teachers that are trying to infiltrate the church and trying to introduce a false gospel or a twisted gospel. And you need to know that I may not be with you physically, but I am with you in a spiritual sense. I am there in spirit with you. And I have written this letter to protect you and to guard you and to equip you. That's what a loving father would do. And that's what he's telling the Colossians, the same kind of thing here. He even goes on to say, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What he says here is he says, you've got dangerous false teachers coming in, but like I'm there watching and listening, I'm very pleased with the way that you're responding to them. What he's telling them in that latter part of chapter 2, verse 5, is that you're holding the line. How wonderful is that? 
And he used a similar expression to convey the same idea to the Thessal Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. He says, but uh, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So here he doesn't say I'm absent, you know, in the body, but with you in spirit. But he says, you know, since we were taken away from you because the spirit led us away or there was a persecution or something of that nature that drove them out of Thessalonica, he, he just simply says, you know what, we're not there with you in person, but we're there in your heart. It's the same idea, the same meaning. And I, I, I love Paul's use of this being present with them in spirit because what it conveys is really his deepest, most innermost desire, and that was to literally be with them. I can't be with you because I'm incarcerated. I can't be with you because I'm a, a, you know, a, 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 an ocean away. I can't be with you for these reasons, but I really wish I were with you. It conveys that he wants to be there with them, which is such a, a, an encouragement. To be with them in spirit was to be there in their memories, in their hearts. If we carry the memory of a past loved one in our heart, it's like their spirit is with us. When we remember what, you know, some of those past loved ones and others had taught us, because, you know, we've been taught. I was taught by K. I was taught by B been taught by a great many people who have gone to be with the Lord, and you have well. But when we remember and reflect on things that we learned from them, and when we actually follow those instructions and that wisdom that they imparted to us, it's even as if they are there guiding us in spirit, right? It really is. It really is. And that's, again, what he's trying to convey here. If I you know, like I think of Kay quite regularly because she had such a, you know, Jen's mom. She had such an impact on my life and uh, was just uh, just such a neat gal in uh, an encouragement factory, right? You know, Calvin warned that the heart is an idol factory. Kay's heart was an encouragement factory. It had been so saturated by the grace of God that the woman could not stop herself from encouraging you and and even giving instructions sometimes if she would hear me moaning and groaning about something she would say no you just stay on the task and keep doing what you're doing and whenever I think about that she is guiding me in a spiritual way uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing I think it's a blessing and that's the meaning of being present in the spirit. The Corinthians were to act as if Paul were there in spirit, pondering his example, pondering and remembering his teachings, remembering his instruction, accepting his instruction, you know, and submitting to his apostolic authority. And then what they were to do is to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus uh, it, with basically the power of the Lord Jesus to go ahead and exercise this judgment that Paul had passed. Expelling the immoral brother. Excommunication. This is what they were to do. Not just, well, it's wonderful that Paul's here with us in spirit, but now we have a responsibility 
to actually execute what he's told us to do. As if it were the Lord telling us this. Because remember, this isn't Paul's word. This is the Lord's word. This is what he's conveying here. They were to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means in the power of the Lord Jesus, because there is power in what? The name. That is the name that is above all names. The only name given among men from heaven by which men can be saved. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and if they were to gather together, follow these instructions, and gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus and, and, and pray and discuss how to address this young man and then to go and to do that, it would be as if not just Paul was there, but Christ was there. Why? Because where two or three are gathered in his name, he is what? Did you know that that text is a disciplinary text? Did you know that that text where it says where two or three are gathered, it has to do with church discipline. It doesn't have to do with sporting events. It doesn't have to do with, well, that's our church now because two or three of us came together and now that constitutes a church, which is an excuse used by many today to not actually be part of a local body like you have done here. Well, if I just gather with a couple other Christians, then it's as if we're at church. That text has nothing to do with that. It has to do with being in the presence of Christ. Christ himself said, where two or three are gathered in my name, that's where I'm at. Meaning, my power is being manifested. My authority is being manifested. And when you execute in love that discipline, it is me doing it. That's the meaning of that text. So stop using it in frivolous ways. Maybe you don't, but there are a great many people who do. This is literally from the mouth of Christ. <clears throat> they were to act as if uh, Paul was there, Christ was there, the power of Christ was there. <clears throat> Most importantly, that Christ himself was there because where two or three are gathered, that's where he's at. He's in their midst, Matthew 18, tw uh, 18 20. And, and the, the idea of Paul being there in spirit is to be taken seriously but not literally but the idea of being there and Christ being present and the power of Christ being manifested in that moment because more than two or three are gathered, that part of Paul's admonition and correction here is to be taken incredibly seriously. Let's not act weird and, 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 and superstitious like as if Paul were with us. Don't take that literally. I'm there in your heart. I'm there in your mind. That's not literal. But when you gather in the name of Jesus where two or three are gathered, Take that seriously. Take the discipline seriously. Take the presence and power of Christ seriously. Christ is literally with them. So there's a difference here. The Lord is there. Take that part literally. <clears throat> Whenever two or more believers assemble to discipline a brother or sister, Christ is there. And I would say Christ is there when one is there because he's in them, but Christ himself gave a special reference to two or three. Why two or three? Because according to the way of God, according, especially in the Old Testament, you had to have witnesses to establish a real case. 
You can't just have one brother making a charge. You've got to have a couple of them that have seen the same thing. And then, so the idea of two or three is that means there's one there that's seen the sexual immorality or whatever has heard of it. And then you have others that have heard of it. And now you come together and you have three, two to three witnesses. Christ is in the midst of his witnesses. That's what the meaning of the text is. That's what it is. And when he's there, his power and authority are present. The discipline isn't coming from a handful of elders or faithful brothers. It's coming through them, but it's coming from Christ. Therefore, it needs to be taken what? Very, very seriously. Very seriously. When uh, backsliders, I don't know what you want to call it, we all do that from time to time, but when backsliders dismiss this particular discipline, they're not just rejecting their brothers and sisters, not just rejecting their elders, they're not just even rejecting the spirit of the apostles. They are rejecting Christ. And the funny thing is, is that they're under such a delusion at these moments that they think they can somehow have a good standing with Christ while doing this. Oh, I love my Jesus. I'm praying to him all the time. I'm reading his word, you know, and they're entangled in some kind of sin and, and they're not responding in humility to the discipline and they're, they're you know, they're kicking against the goads and, and even saying things like, which I've had said to me by quote unquote Christians, you're judging me. Well, I guess if it was okay for Paul, it's okay for me. We're supposed to make judgments in the church, not outside of the church. You're judging me. That's a phrase, by the way, that unbelievers use. So if a brother or sister uses it, not a good sign. And I've had it used against me here many times. This is not just elders or just, you know, Bruce is retired, but he's probably doing almost as much as the elders are right now. I've been throwing him into stuff. Sorry, brother. Uh, but you know what? You're totally useful for the Lord. And if, unless you say no, it's going to keep happening. Um, but this is not just, hey, I, I love you. This is not just a rejection of Bruce when these things happen. It's not just a rejection of me. It's not just a rejection of Cameron or Dave or any of our past elders, which we've had these things happen. It is tantamount to a rejection of Christ himself. It is. An excommunication, in a way, is the rejection of Christ against that person. It is. Now, they may be a legitimate believer that Christ truly loves, and the rejection of that person in that moment is meant for their good. Turn them over to Satan. Let Satan pulverize them for a while so they can see what they're missing in the church. But it is a two-way street. What did Christ say? If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my heavenly Father. And if this happens and plays out in the context of church discipline, I don't see it as me being rejected. I see it as a rejection of Christ. And, and we've had this happen in the past with people, and we warn them of that. And that's a scary thing. It is a scary thing. <clears throat> At that point, the Lord instructs his underdisciplinarians to excommunicate the unrepentant backslider. Matthew 18, 17, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, and of course in five, chapter 5, verse 9, and chapter uh, 5, verse 13. These are all... Uh, different ways of saying to remove that person. They need to be rejected and removed. 
pardon me. <clears throat> I hate to do this, but if I don't, it's going to be running all over the place. <clears throat> so what we're talking about here under this third point is the presence of Paul and the power of Christ. Now let's move to the fourth. <clears throat> the price for unrepentant sin, verse 5. Listen to what he says in verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Uh, to excommunicate a professing believer uh, out, out of their fellowship would be to deliver. It's kind of like the same thing as just delivering them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. That's what Paul is saying. When you excommunicate someone because they're rejecting the discipline of the Lord, you are, in a sense, turning them back over to where they came from, to Satan, turning them back over to the world. That's what you're doing. You're handing them back to where they came from. And it's, it's funny when you say that because they've been acting probably for a while that they've been part of the world or under Satan for a while anyway. So are you really turning them back to him? But that's the meaning here. You, you excommunicate. You remove somebody from the fellowship. You're turning them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. <clears throat> Satan is the prince and power of the air. He's the ruler of this world, Ephesians 2, 2, John 12, 31. He has major influence on, on the ideas and opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people. This is, <clears throat> that's a no-brainer. His influence also encompasses the world's philosophies and education and commerce um, the thoughts, ideas, speculations, and false religions of the world are under his control <coughs> and have sprung from his lies and deceptions. Now, this is not to say that he rules the world or rules over the world completely. God is still sovereign. God is still king, always will be. But it does mean that God in his infinite wisdom has allowed Satan to operate in this world within the boundaries that God has set for him. And it seems to me that those boundaries are pretty wide because Satan does exert quite a bit of influence throughout the world and quite a bit of destruction. And that's all according to God's, you know, infinite wisdom and plan. He allows these things to happen to Satan to do these things and he's got reasons for it. I don't know if there's a book in the Bible that illustrates this better than Job. I mean, it, we took a couple of years to go through it and You've got Satan going to get permission to wreak havoc on earth. And so that's essentially what you have playing out. Um, so the, the influence and power that Satan has is there, but it's limited. It's limited. He has to operate within the boundaries that, that God has set for him. <clears throat> he may not want to do that, but he really doesn't have much choice. The Bible says Satan has power over the world. We must remember that God has given him dominion or domain over unbelievers only. Okay, so when we talk about the power of Satan, the prince power of the air, exerting influence and these sorts of things, if he's ruling over anyone, it's not over the church. Christ rules over the church. Satan rules over unbelievers. They're his. And in the bigger sense, they belong to God. But for the most part, that is his audience. That is his people of influence. Believers are no longer under the rule of Satan. Colossians 1.13. Unbelievers, on the other hand, are caught 
in the snare of the devil, 2 Tim 2.26. They're under the power of the evil one, 1 John 5.19. And they actually do Satan's work, Ephesians 2.2. 2. That's a scary thought. Turning a believer over to Satan thrusts the believer back into the world on his own, apart from the care and support of Christian fellowship. That person has forfeited his right to participation in the church of Jesus Christ, which Jesus Christ intends to keep pure at all costs. Did you hear me? Why does church discipline exist? Well, first of all, ultimately, in the highest sense, it is to keep the church pure. Secondary to that, it is to... It is to... Um, discipline in love his people so he intends to keep it pure at all costs uh, the greek word for deliver is paradidomai and uh, we we see it there in uh, at the toward the beginning of verse five paradidomai it's a judicial term and it represents the act of sentencing like as if you were before a judge and a judge was sentencing you to uh, for your crime that you've committed, sentencing to you to jail time, execution, whatever it may be. It occurs frequently in the Passion story, believe it or not, which I think is interesting, the last week of Jesus' earthly life here um, before he's crucified and dies for our sin. It is used for the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, uh, Mark 14.10. It's used for Jesus being handed over to Pilate by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, Mark 15, 1. Uh, it's used for Jesus being delivered up by Pilate according to the will of the people. Remember, they were crying out, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Uh, Luke 23, 25, it's used for Jesus being given over to the soldiers for execution, Mark 15, 15. In each of those instances, it's used as a judiciary term. It is that Christ was delivered over sentenced to suffering, sentenced to death for our salvation, which is a good thing. The sentence passed on the unrepentant, sexually immoral man is that he is to be delivered over to Satan. We see a situation or a similar situation in 1 Tim chapter 1, verse 20, where Paul excommunicated Hymenaeus and Alexander because of continued blasphemy. These were two guys who were professing Christ who just kept blaspheming, and eventually Paul handed them over to Satan, excommunicated them. They were pastors preaching a false gospel. It says Paul delivered them over to Satan that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Wow. Uh, the result of this discipline that Paul is presenting here in chapter 5 is the destruction of the flesh. Well, what is sexual immorality it is an act of the flesh. It is the lust of the flesh. And the idea is you turn this person over to Satan, who is just probably the best UFC fighter to ever exist, just beats the snot out of people, destroys them. And the idea here is that he will so inflict harm on them physically that it will literally bring that sexual sin right out of them. That it's something that they will no longer practice. And it could be through inflicting them in such a way that the organs and things that are involved in such a heinous sin don't work. You just don't know how Satan might really pummel and beat this person up. It's the destruction of their flesh. 
And I, I, I just had a thought. We are called as followers of Christ to put to death our flesh, right? We are called to destroy our flesh and to walk in the spirit. If we don't walk in the spirit and de destroy our flesh, we'll be handed over to someone who will. You understand? The devil, he's good at it. And the way that he goes about it isn't, let me tell you something right now. I think it would be better for us to commit ourselves to destroying our own flesh than to be handed over to him for the destruction of our flesh. I really do. I really do. Satan could inflict the backsliders so terribly that they even die physically. Right? Um, this, this idea here, this, this word here that represents de uh, destruction, it's um, alethros. It, it literally even refers to, at times, the destruction of life itself. And that could be the meaning here. It's not just that I'm going to turn, the church is going to turn you over to Satan so he pummels you and destroys your flesh, but we're going to turn you over so that Satan kills you. It could mean that. It seems to be what Paul is saying. That's terrifying. And this word, alethros, is used in connection with divine judgment on sin quite regularly in Scripture. But just bear in mind that Satan has no authority or power over the spirits of believers, right? You could have a legitimate believer who's gone such, in such a wayward mode that they spurn and reject the discipline. They're excommunicated. Satan is pulverizing them, but they're still actually a person of faith. And maybe they do have some conviction in there, and that's showing that, but they don't have the strength to get through that sin or to turn it away or something like that, or they just don't want to get rid of it. I, I, I've always had a hard time understanding that, but somehow it's possible. And that seems to be what Paul is saying, that this person could be turned over and just pummeled to death, and yet their spirit, the part that is eternally secure in Christ, will be redeemed on that day. Now, that doesn't tell me, that's not like a, like some kind of a lemon law or a clause. I guess I'll just give myself over to the temptations of the flesh and on the last day I'll be redeemed. No believer should think like that. A genuine believer says, I don't even want to have any interaction with Satan. I don't want to even have to go before the elders and confess my sin or be challenged on it. That's the heart of a real believer. But I get it. Sometimes we get entangled in stuff that just has so much power over us. And I think that in the genuine believer... The Spirit will prevail at some point and crush that sin. I do. But here it's the idea of being destroyed physically, but being redeemed on the day of the Lord. I find some comfort in that. It's the idea, again, of this believer narrowly escaping the flames, which is something that Paul's already talked about in this epistle, right? But who, who wants to be that believer? What believer wants to be that believer? The one who, 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 who gets into, into, into glory in heaven by the skin of their teeth? Who, 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 who in their right mind is a genuine, regenerated, born from above believer would even settle for something like that? You have to ask yourself that. Well, I'm glad I made it, 
Well, what believer would be satisfied with that? Knowing that all their works are consumed on that day because they were utterly useless. I, 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 want, I, I don't want self-glory or, or some kind of reward or something, but I certainly don't want the majority of the things that I've done while in the faith to be consumed by fire on the last day. Is that what you want? You see, really, there's a distinction being drawn here in the text. The genuine believer would never want that. Never. They're not willing to settle for something like that. But they're also not consumed with the idea of reward to the point that that's all they care about. Now we're talking about some of the charismatics. Because it's all they want is the blessing of God. I want God. Do you want God? That's the goal. I want the Lord. He. I don't care about storehouses and, and glassy streets. I don't care. They looked pretty glassy last night with all the rain here in Modesto. I don't care about that. I, I really, I, I'm really not fascinated or super excited about receiving some kind of inheritance that's imperishable. Fine. That's great. My inheritance is God. That's what I want. Is that what you want? I want him face to face. No longer through faith. No longer dimly lit as, as a, in a mirror. I want to see Christ face to face. And I wanted to see him really bad over the last two weeks as I was sick. <laughs> because I was miserable. He is our reward. It's not about golden streets. It's not about uh, all of those tangible, real blessings that he's going to give to his people. It is about him and having him, the redeemer of your soul, the one and only who could save you to be with him forever and ever with no tears, no flus, no cold, no pain. Ugh with a, a, a complete, perfect view of him, not distorted and marred by sin or the flesh. No prostate cancer. Hmm? No death. No pain. I mean, those are some great bennies. You know what those things are? They're meant for our sanctification, and they're just distractions at times. That's all they are. But when you go to be with him, there's no distraction. It's just him in glory, in radiant, eternal glory, in pure majesty. How could you not want that? Don't you think it's worth it to put this garbage to death for that? It is to me. It's a struggle. This is not even in the script. What might it look like for Satan to destroy the flesh but not the spirit, Job? Amen? Huh? Job. Although Job wasn't sexually immoral or in sin. It was a test. There, were different, there was a different context and a different rationale for what happened with him. 
And it's justifiable because God, he's part of God's creation and God can do whatever he wants with his creation. But that's a great example of how God preserves one in the midst of such terrible destruction. And, and Paul's even saying here <clears throat> to this man who's caught in this wickedness that you need to turn him loose, that his flesh would be destroyed by the adversary but that his spirit might be redeemed and saved on the day of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. Paul, how can you think like that? Look at what this man is doing. Look at what he's doing. Look at how he's brought impurity in, into the church and how he's defiling the name of Christ. And look at what he's doing. And yet you're still, you're still offering him repentance. Maybe it only comes on the last day. Such is the love of God. Such is the grace of God. How could someone like this guy who's having sexual relations with, with his father's wife, his mom, stepmom, how could somebody like that even be considered for something on the last day? Because Christ died for the worst. That's why. I'm no better than him. Prior, prior to being saved, I had, I had and, and, and really I should clarify this because my wife is probably watching at home, prior to being married, I had plenty of sexual sin in my life. And even as I was married, I, I had some with, with pornography and these sorts of things. This is all relative sexual sin. And Christ, Christ died for somebody as despicable and as filthy as me to redeem me. And not just on the last day, but even now. <clears throat> I think Job's a good example of one being preserved until the last moment. <clears throat> Although he was an innocent man. For stubborn brothers and sisters who refuse to repent and trample Christ's merciful correction underfoot. If that's, if that's what we are and that's what we're about, then the price that we will pay for that is excommunication and being turned over to Satan. That's the price. And that's not just the price for unrepentant sexual sin. That's the, that's, that's, that's the price for really any, any unrepentant sin, especially that heavy stuff. We are to live repentant, confessional lives. Keep very short accounts. Spend each day confessing our sin to the Lord. <clears throat> That's the price. Fifth point, the proliferation of sin, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you, know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? <clears throat> proliferation is just a fancy word for spread. <laughs> Discipline has to be severe at times because the consequence of not disciplining uh, sin, they're much worse. Sin is a spiritual malignancy. Unless removed, it's going to spread its infection until the whole fellowship of believers is diseased. This is what happens. The Corinthians underestimated the proliferation of sin, how it can quickly you know, spread and infect others. They just didn't even consider any of that. Instead of dealing with the problem at hand, they were too busy boasting about their wisdom. Paul rebukes them right off the bat here. Your boasting is not good. 
This was his way of saying, look where your arrogance and boasting have brought you. You are completely blinded to the blatant sin that will destroy your church if you do not take immediate action. This is what he's saying. This, this church is on the rim of losing its lampstand. It is. It's right on the edge. And I like how Paul used a baking metaphor to drive home his point. Leaven is used in bread making. It's basically yeast. It takes only a little bit of leaven to permeate an entire lump of dough. And sin is just like leaven. It starts out small, eventually spreads, permeating the entire church. Same thing, great parallel Paul uses. If the Corinthians failed to take action, the sin of one sexually immoral couple would spread like leaven to the rest of the body. Next thing you know, there'd be others in there justifying sexual sin or engaging in sexual sin and justifying it and even saying things like, look, the elders didn't do anything to them. I guess we have nothing to worry about. This is what happens. It's amazing how even within the redeemed, how our minds will default to that kind of justification and rationalization. And if the whole body rejects, you know, biblical correction, then Christ is going to remove that lampstand, turn that whole congregation over to Satan. <coughs> he will surely do that. <coughs> Have we not seen the Lord do this with entire denominations? Episcopalianism is a great example. It was founded in 1789, has about almost 2 million members, and 83% of those 2 million members affirm LGBTQ+, add the rest of the alphabet, as legitimate God-ordained sexualities. That entire denomination has been turned over to Satan. Entire one. And now, does that to say that there aren't probably a few loyal, committed believers in there? Well, only 83% are down with that. Yeah, I think there's probably still some legitimate believers in there, but I don't know why they stay with it. <clears throat> At some point, maybe they'll bounce. That denom may have plenty of nice buildings and be bustling with weekly activities, but its lampstand is surely gone. It's now in the hands of Satan. Let's move to our sixth point. <clears throat> the purging of the old ways, verses 7 and 8. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul continues on with his baking metaphor, but this time he ties it to the Exodus and Passover. During that momentous event, God instructed his people to make uh, and eat unleavened bread, bread without yeast, <clears throat> flat bread, pita bread, whatever you want to call it. By doing this, they were to be set apart from the Egyptians in a sense because all they had was they put leaven in everything. Not leaven, <laughs> leaven. Metaphorically, leaven represented the old way of life under the Egyptian regime. The Israelites could still partake of leaven or leavened bread, but not when they were celebrating the Passover. That was a time where they had to abstain from that. They couldn't even have it in their homes. Exodus 12, 15, Deuteronomy 16, 3. <clears throat> During Passover, it was a time of remembrance and separation. We must they were called to be different from Egypt and others, and this was a time to remember that and to practice that, although God wanted them to practice that at all times. God had also instructed his people to sacrifice a lamb, paint the door lentils, the posts uh, with its blood that the Lord would pass over their homes and 
not destroy their firstborn children. Exodus 12, 7 and 12, verse 29. The sacrificial lamb's blood and coverings over those doors pictured the perfect final sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he is our Passover. His blood covers our sins, just as the blood of those lambs covered those doorposts and lentils. His blood covers our sins, and His righteousness covers over us, protecting us from divine judgment. Here are the parallels Paul was making. The old leaven represents sexual immorality. They were to cleanse out the old leaven. But how? By eliminating sexual immorality from the congregation. In doing this, they would become a new lump of unleavened dough. Basically, what he's saying is you need to remove the sexually immoral brother because he's like leaven and has the potential to spread his dis disastrous disease sin through the church. You need to remove him and become a fresh new lump of dough. That's what Paul is teaching them. He tells them that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for that very purpose, right? What? To purge the old, to kill off the old man, to, to purge the old leaven, the old ways from our lives and to make us new people, a new creation, new creatures, right? It's the entire purpose of Christ's sacrifice, which is pictured in the Passover. He died to make us new. Why do we have leaven still? Why did we let leaven back in? That's the point. Believers are like the showbread in the tabernacle and temple. Numbers 4, 7, 2 Chronicles 2, 4. They are to be free of yeast, all sin, because they are consecrated unto the Lord for holy use. We're like that special bread that was put on a special table in the tabernacle, a pure bread set aside for holy consecrated use didn't have leaven wasn't conceived in sin that's what we are we're like that bread that's what Paul is teaching them how because of Christ because of his Passover work on our behalf they were to uh, basically Paul exhorts the Corinthians to celebrate the Passover festival the blood-covering, purifying work of Christ, not with leavened bread, with all this ongoing sexual sin, but with unleavened bread. What is unleavened bread now? It means repentance. Drive that guy out. Repent of your pride and inactivity and your competitiveness and battling over who's the best preacher. Stop all this nonsense. Rid yourselves. Become a fresh loaf of unleavened bread consecrated unto the Lord and bring him what he is due. Bring him what he earned. Bring him what he bought at Calvary. Purity. Purity. That's what he's saying. They had to purge themselves of the old ways by repenting of that pride and stop quarreling by delivering that sexually immoral man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh and hopefully the redemption of his spirit on the day of the Lord. Until then, they could not safely, until then, they could not safely celebrate the Passover. This plays right into what Dave was talking about earlier, the seriousness of that. This whole church is being told, essentially, until you get rid of the leaven and clean it up, 
and commit yourself to the Lord as a consecrated holy, holy people unto him until you do that. Don't even think about Passover. Don't even think about going to that supper table and taking those elements because you will bring judgment on yourself. In fact, later on in chapter 15, this is exactly what they did. They didn't bother with his warning and some of them were dying because of this. The Lord was smiting them for taking communion in an unholy way because they weren't repenting. They probably said, hey, Jim, Bob, and Sally, the immoral couple, here's the elements. Enjoy. This is serious. Until then, they could not safely celebrate the Passover work of Christ through communion. And that is why some of them were weak, ill, and dying they were taking the elements while harboring sin and sinners. 1 Corinthians, it's actually chapter 11, 27 to 31. Let's move to that seventh and final point. And this is the point of points. This, this is it. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the biggest point in reason for this admonition, for this correction, for this discipline. This is the big one. It is the seventh and final P, the purity of the body, as represented in verses 9 to 13. That's the goal. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's the past letter that we don't have. <coughs> Listen to what he says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Just stop there. Paul reminds the Corinthians of that previous letter the one he had written and sent before 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In that letter, he instructed them not to associate with the sexually immoral people. And I know what he's doing there. He's referring to that couple. Uh, but that's not the way they took it. What they did was they separated themselves from sexually immoral people outside of the church. Stop sharing the gospel with them. Stop preaching the gospel with them. Stop bearing influence on them. Stop trying to disciple or not disciple but evangelize. That's what they did. Okay, Paul, we hear you loud and clear. We drew a line in the sand and I stopped going into quick stop. I sold my yearly pass to Disneyland. We cut out the outside world. Paul is saying, wrong. That's not what I meant. You were to cut yourself off from that pair who names the name of Christ, not the outsiders. Because Paul says, if I was telling you to cut yourself off from the outsiders, you may as well go out of this world. You don't need to be here. Well, why would that be? Because they have a mission. That's why you're here. Did you know that? You're not here, Bruce. You're not here, Lauren. You're not here, Lily. Or you're not here, Phil, just to be worshipers because you can do that for all eternity in his presence. You are here as a missionary. You have a massive group of people who are on the broad road to destruction that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. It's not just about worship and assembling on Sundays. Do you know what the assembly exists for on Sunday? Yes, it's about worshiping the Lord, but yes, equally, it's about equipping the saints for the ministry of the gospel. To who? To all our believer friends? No, to them outside there that are driving on this road here. Paul's saying, you cut off the wrong people. What are you doing? That's not what I meant. Now, I would agree that there is wisdom in not getting too close. Because bad company, what? Corrupts good morals. So you've got to be careful and discerning. 
with the outside world. It's a very powerful force and can suck you in and pulverize you. I used to tell junior high kids, and you know, most of them had unbelieving friends, and I'm like, for every unbelieving friend you associate, you need to have 10 believing friends. Because it'll just be barely that those 10 believing friends will have enough strength and power to influence you positively, because the other one, will. that's just how, that's just how wicked and how powerful the world is. It's constantly trying to pull us into stuff. They cut off the wrong group of people. MacArthur says, apparently the church had stopped having contact with unbelievers instead of unrepentant believers. <laughs> Talk about adventures and missing the point. <clears throat> In verse 10, he clarifies what he meant. They were, not to dis they were not to disassociate from the sexually immoral of the world or other types of sinners, such as the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. They represent our mission field. If that's who the Corinthians were to disassociate from, there's no reason for them to be here, and they can just go be with Jesus. What a great reminder to us that we have a mission to reach unbelievers with the gospel, to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded, Mark 16, 15, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. If we aren't on mission, if we aren't sharing the good news and making disciples, we have, in a great sense, lost our usefulness here. We may as well go be with the Lord. That's why he's left us here. And I think this is the ultimate reason why God prolongs the lives of believers who are even impacted by serious illnesses and things, that he still has time for them here and a mission for them here to fulfill. And until their time and their mission is complete, they're not going anywhere. It doesn't matter if they pray, just get me out of here. I'm not getting you out of here. I'm going to get you to go next door and talk to Sally. Go preach the gospel to her. Do you see that over there? Do it. We got six cars on our lawn. Oh, that's weird. We have that in our neighborhood. People just put furniture out expecting people to take it. It's just weird. But, you know, you're here and you have a mission. That's what he's saying. You cut out the wrong people. <clears throat> that's why witnessing is so important on this side of glory. And that's what Paul is telling them. Brings even more clarity in the last couple of lines here, verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Or not even, don't even eat with such a person. So he, he just draws a line here or distinguishes what he actually meant. I was talking about those in the church. Don't hang out with those people. Disassociate from revilers and drunkards and sexually immoral in the church. They're to be, they are to experience or to go through church discipline. And if they don't repent, they are to be excommunicated and removed and turned over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. I'm not talking about outsiders. That's what Paul says here. He says, don't even eat with such a one. Eating then was such an intimate thing. You know, dinners were three or four hours long and you're not even supposed to do that. You have to really cut ties with that person across the board. And you know what makes that really, really hard is when that person's a family member. I'm not talking about a church family member. I'm talking about your own family member. That makes it really, really tough to do that. <clears throat> but the Word of God is the Word of God. Verses 11 or 12 and 13. <coughs> lastly, he says, for what do I have, for what do I do with judging outsiders? <clears throat> is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here's the end of the text. 
Paul tells the Corinthians that believers have no responsibility, no right to judge outsiders. It's not our job. God's the one who does that. That's his job. He's already rendered judgment. Read Romans 1. Read John 1. They hated the light and chose darkness. It's already happened. He's still judging. He's still bringing judgment on people now. That's his job to do that. We are not to judge outsiders, we are to witness to outsiders. <coughs> but it is our job as believers to judge insiders, those who profess Christ and simultaneously refuse to repent. That's where we do render judgment. <coughs> and the judgment we must render is not easy, but it is entirely necessary. And in this context, it's purge the evil person from among you. That's excommunication. Hand them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Boy, let me tell you something right now. That is one of the toughest things to do. It is a tough thing as an elder. I, I don't think that I or the other elders or elders for a couple thousand years now have really stopped to consider just how challenging that is to do, how hard it is to do. Um, but it is completely necessary because Christ takes the purity of His church very seriously. And He expects those whom He's ordained as leaders to do the same. And even those who aren't in leadership, even regular believers, congregation. Um, by excommunicating, handing over to Satan, this is one of the ways believers maintain the purity of the church. There's a much less invasive way to keep this purity intact, right? If we will commit to, bring, uh, commit to being or living as sacrifices and put to death the deeds of the flesh like we're supposed to through the power of the Holy Spirit, if we will carefully judge ourselves, regularly confessing and repenting of sin, well, we keep ourselves and the church pure. It's all about self-management. That's what we're called to do. If we don't do that, then it bleeds over and gets others involved. And then you have church discipline. It's really that simple. And when the church is pure, there's no need for painful church discipline. This is precisely what Paul tells the Corinthians later in chapter 11, verse 31, where he declared, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. You see that? If we would deal with ourselves in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, just as we've been empowered and equipped to do, if we would keep short accounts with ourselves, and deal with our own sins and be confessional and repentant. If, if we would be like, um, I thought about this at the Lord's Supper where Peter wanted his whole body washed and Jesus just said, you need your feet washed. If we would just be in the regular habit of washing our feet each day, which is equivalent to confessing of our daily sin, that it wouldn't mount up and build up and spill over and then pull the elders off mission. Because that's what church discipline does. Some would say, no, that's part of the mission. No, it isn't. No, it is not. Me trying to fix mismanaged lives is not the mission. And I get tired of it. If we would manage ourselves, that's what Paul is saying, it's a game changer. And you have the ability and power to do this. Now, sometimes stuff gets away from us and you need some help. That's not church discipline. That's just help. And you get that help. You go to that faithful brother or sister and you confess to them. And you ask for their help. Help me to get out of this thing. Become an accountability partner to me. Hold me accountable. 
well, I'll do that, but if you're just, just going to call me every other day because you're doing it, I'm, I'm, it's not going to last because you're supposed to repent and walk away. But if we would just keep short accounts, I know it's not the easiest thing to do in the world, but you know what? Let me tell you something that's a lot harder. Church discipline. Being turned over Satan for the destruction of your flesh. That's fun. Yeah, that's a blast. May we take these biblical instructions seriously, judge ourselves, confess and repent sin of sin daily. Not merely, not merely, listen, beloved, not merely because we are fearful of dis divine discipline. Because that's what we're talking about in chapter 5. May we do what we're supposed to do, not merely based on the fear of divine discipline or Matthew 18. That's a good deterrent. That's a good reason. But may it not be entirely because of that. But may it be, be because we love Christ and His church. It's that simple. We love Christ firstly and we love His church. And we know that we have a mission. And we know that purity is essential to that mission. And we don't allow, we don't allow the fermentation of yeast in us. We Kill sin, as Owen said, because we don't want it to kill us. Because it will. The wages of sin is death, Romans 